it's precisely because so many evangelicals divorce God's love from his other attributes that they can't appreciate a chapter like we're going to be looking at today and the judgments and the fear of God that the Psalms we've just sung have talked about. First Samuel chapter 27, and we're going to be seeing, seeing that there is a reason why God is to be feared. This is God's holy, inerrant word. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of, seeking of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the six hundred men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Then David said to Achish, If I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Girzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, Thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it is a holy word, and it is our desire to understand it and to live by it. We pray for your blessing upon this, your people. We pray that uh, you would be with me as I preach your word, that you would uh, uh, cause your people to grow in you in every area. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This uh, past Tuesday, a Facebook friend uh, posted a, a little statement that I thought was a, a wonderful statement. It said, only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, a victim into a victory. And as I read that post, I realized that it's not just uh, commenting on the, the fact that God can bring wonderful things out of apparent uh, negative situations, but that we have a tendency to focus in on the negative. And I did a little experiment this past week. I, 
uh, went on the web, and I don't usually do this because I don't find uh, these sermons to be of any use whatsoever, but I wanted to see what other people preach on this uh, passage here. And uh, the first surprise was that there are precious few people who were bold enough to preach on this passage. Of the 357 pastors who have done series on 1 Samuel, there's quite a few series, only 21 preached on this passage, and 100% of those 21 said David was in sin, he was backslidden, uh, this was just totally wrong for him to be involved in it. Now it's true, these were not, uh, at least I don't think, were Reformed uh, preachers, but I think they are representative of what uh, goes on out there. For them, this chapter was a mess, not a message. And uh, looking at the chapter from our sanitized 21st century perspective, they fail to see the testimony, the wonderful testimony in here. They fail to see the, the tribute to God's grace at work in David's life or to see uh, the way in which God was bringing victory out of uh, apparent uh, defeat. Now, not everybody has this perspective. There are reform commentators like Walter Chantry who are appalled at the negativity that is heaped upon this chapter. Unfortunately, he didn't say a whole lot uh, on this either, but he did say that it illustrates David's incredible faith in God and his faithfulness to God. And I agree. And we're going to be explaining why that is and why it's so practical in our lives. But that little exercise got me to wondering, I wonder how many people in our congregation are facing the same kinds of things that, that David did. You're trying and struggling to make the best out of a bad situation in your life, and everybody's criticizing you. You know, you've got 357 pastors who criticize you can't find anything good you're doing, right? And so you've got Saul against you, and you've got the Israelites who think you're traitors, and people who are political... Uh, who are wondering, you voted for that? And uh, they uh, say, you know, I don't really agree with the way you dress, and I don't agree with what you eat and what you drink and the friends that you have. And it seems like no matter what you're doing, your motives are being misinterpreted. Now, if that's even a little bit true of you, I think you're going to appreciate this passage. Now, even if it's not true of you, that your life is a mess because of your own fault and they're not misinterpreting you, uh, you can at least look for the message uh, in the mess that uh, God has for you and the triumph that is in your trial. Either way, I think this is a chapter that we cannot relegate to the dustbin and say it's not relevant for today like so many people uh, have done. And because of the misinterpretations in the chapter and the consequent misinterpretations of David, what uh, I've done is a little bit unusual outline uh, what I'm grouping everything around is the six main myths that surround this chapter. First myth. Myth number one is that this whole chapter represents a time of backsliding and lack of faith in David's life. And there are various ways that people have tried to show this. Uh, one of the ways that uh, is very, very common out there is that God's name does not appear uh, in this chapter, and they say that's very deliberate to expose the idea that God was not in David's thoughts, that he was in a backslidden condition uh, in this chapter. Well, first of all, I, I've got to tell you that chapter divisions are not inspired. They weren't even put into place for almost a millennium after the Bible was written. And uh, even uh, if they were, uh, here, here's the point. The 
glorious passage that we preached on last week that shows God's presence, God's grace, and the remarkable love of David happened at the same time. Uh, The word and in verse 1 is a wow consecutive in the Hebrew, which means this happened right afterwards. This is sequentially exactly what, what happens next in David's thoughts. And so the NASB and the ESV translated as then David said in his heart. So this assumption really is bad exegesis, but let's just assume for the moment that it's not. Let's assume uh, that, uh, you know, they've got a, somewhat of a case, then I would say, okay, well, this proves too much because we're going to have all kinds of passages in the Bible, just like Rodney mentioned. The whole book of Esther doesn't have the name of God, doesn't have the, any reference to, to God in it. And there are other passages as well. For example, Exodus 26, where Moses is uh, preparing the plans for the tabernacle, there's no mention of God, Lord, Jehovah, anything like that. Or you could look at Exodus chapter 37 where the gifted Bezalel is making the furniture for the temple. Or you could look at Joshua 16 where faithful Israel is receiving the inheritance of the land from Joshua. Or Proverbs 4, Proverbs 7, Proverbs 27, or the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, in other words, this is not a legitimate exegetical point uh, that they are making. It proves too much. Now others will appeal to the myths that are in your outline and we'll deal with those in a moment. But there is another argument that people bring up, and they say that David was making decisions in this chapter without ever praying about them. I'm thinking, well, why don't they say that about previous chapters where they praise him, but there's no prayer mentioned there. They're arguing from silence, and it's not really a legitimate argument. As we're going to be seeing in the Psalms that he wrote during this period, he was praying daily. He was cast upon the Lord uh, very, uh, very much. Uh, So in this passage, we don't know that he's not praying. In fact, as we'll be seeing later, it's not totally silent because we're going to be seeing that David was following God's guidance to the T in his dealings with the Amalekites. This is not something where he's just coming up with something on his own. There isn't anything in this chapter that would necessitate uh, the idea that David was backslidden Instead, preachers are importing into the text their own 21st century prejudices. Now, it's so easy for us to do this. Um, My sons will on occasion dialogue with me about some rule that uh, I have made, uh, something the way they have to dress or some other thing, and they're quite content to submit to my house rule even if I can't show it from Scripture. But they just say, Dad, you mind talking with me about... um, the biblicity of this, if that is a word, biblicity. <laughs> and uh, I say, sure, we can dialogue. I always love uh, talking about uh, any subject uh, from the Bible. And you know, there have been some times where I've begun to realize my prejudices are not biblical prejudices. And I've had to change uh, those uh, prejudices. And I believe a lot of the prejudices modern man have against this chapter is because The church has become a bunch of mild-mannered people teaching other mild-mannered people how to become more mild-mannered. And what they do is they judge this chapter based on their mild manners. That's not the way it works. It is Scripture that judges our mild manners. Amen? (laughs) Okay. Now, here's how I dispose of this myth. And actually, when I'm looking at any chapter in this series, I'm always asking a number of different questions. One of the first questions I ask is, is David violating any command that God has given, any law that he has given in his word. 
And the answer here is clearly no. The things that people excoriate David for, they can't find any chapter or verse on it. And we'll look at that in a moment. The second thing that I ask myself is, is David following any mandate that the the Scripture gives? And we're going to be looking at a couple of mandates that indeed he was obeying very faithfully uh, in in this chapter. And then uh, a third thing that um, I I ask of, of a chapter is, are there any passages that comment on this chapter that will help us to understand it? And of course, 1 Chronicles chapter 12 is a commentary on the entire 16 months that David was in Philistia. Uh, And the interpretation that 1 Chronicles 12 gives is very positive that God was building His kingdom. Uh, And interestingly, when Amasai defected to David during the time period that our chapter is talking about, God's Spirit came upon Amasai and he prophesied a message to David. And I want to read that message to you because I think it's very interesting. But I'm going to um, start by reading the verse before, give a little bit of context. First Chronicles 12, verse 17. And David went out to meet them and answered and said to them, If you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if to betray me to my enemies, since there is no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring judgment. So David himself is thinking in terms of God, God's ethics, and he's appealing to God. He's not talking like a backslidden uh, unbeliever or backslidden Christian. Uh, But it's the next verse that I find so interesting. Verse 18 says, Then the Spirit came upon Amasai, chief of the captains, and he said, We are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troop. Well, there you've got a definitive statement from God's Holy Spirit that God's approval, peace, and blessing was upon David during this whole period of time. And not only that, that God was helping him in all of the things that he's doing in this chapter. God endorsed what David was doing. So that's an inspired interpretation of what's going on in this chapter. Now, anytime I'm looking again in, in a book, I'm asking myself, are there any psalms that David wrote during this period of time that might give us clues, that might give us hints as to what's going on in the chapter? Now, I don't always tell you guys this, but this is what's going on in my mind all the time. And there were indeed some uh, psalms that were written during this period of time, Psalms 86, Psalms 131, and Psalm 141. I've got a list of eight other psalms that were probably written during this period as well. There's a lot of internal and, and some external uh, evidences of that. But I'm just going to stick with those three. You look at those three psalms, and I think it's impossible to read them. It's impossible to read the other eight psalms too, but it's impossible to read those three psalms without realizing David mourns over the fact that he is in exile And yet, in those psalms, he recognizes that God will never leave him nor forsake him. In those psalms, he puts his trust in God. He seeks humbly to wait for God's guidance. And I'm going to give you an example from Psalm 86. David says, Bow down your ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. Now, he's not saying that pridefully. 
God's Spirit forces prophets to say, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, 1 Peter says. So this is God's Spirit speaking through David, saying he's not backslidden. He says, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And as you keep reading in that psalm, you realize he daily went to God's grace. He daily prayed before the Lord. He daily gave statements that Jehovah is greater than all of the gods around him, which implies he's not in Israel. He's in a foreign land when he wrote this uh, psalm. And then he speaks of this trust in God, despite the fact that God had allowed violent men to chase him. Now, I've spent more time on this point because it illustrates how easy it is for people to make wrong judgments of others. And so you've got 21st century men thinking poorly of David. You've got Saul thinking poorly of David. You've got other uh, uh, people in Israel thinking poorly of him. What do you do when you're in circumstances like that? Well, you go to God just like David did. Okay, and you faithfully serve God like David did. And when you're tempted to have a temper tantrum, you humble yourself before God like David did in Psalm 131. And when you feel like lashing out with your tongue at all of the judgmental attitudes of people around you, what you do is you use David's words in Psalm 141 where he said, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. Do you think he was tempted to lash out with his lips? I think he was. And he would say, Lord, please guard my lips. And when you're sick and tired of people criticizing you, uh, you look for the grain of truth that is in their statements, just like uh, David did in Psalm 141, verse 5. He said, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff. So he's saying, I am willing to have people rebuke me and expose any sin in my life, but because their rebukes don't find any sin there, because what I'm doing is authorized by God, I'm going to continue to do the things. And then he lists exactly the kinds of things that 1 Samuel 27 is talking about, including these judgments, you know, by the sides of the cliff, you know, pushing people uh, over. So he is, he, he is very, very clearly indicating that his heart really was trying to follow God uh, by, by God's grace. In fact, any temptation that you might face when you're going through a mess and being misinterpreted like David was being misinterpreted, I think they're answered by the Psalms that were written during this time. Psalm 86, Psalm 131, Psalm 141, and actually all eight of the other, uh, another eight Psalms uh, that are there. And I know that this is a, a, a long first point, but I, what it's doing is it's setting a solid foundation for all of the other points. Misconception 2 says that David was in sin by leaving the physical land of Israel. They say God had given the land to the Israelites, and it is rebellion for any Israelite to leave the land of Israel. Let me quote from one sermon, and there are many other examples I could give. He said, David sinned grievously in seeking refuge among the enemies of the Lord. 
And I have no clue where in the world he got that idea from. Were Joseph and Mary in sin when they took the baby Jesus and they fled from Herod and took refuge amongst the enemies of God in Egypt? I don't think so. God commanded them to go there, right? And if it wasn't sin for Joseph and Mary to go there, I don't see how we can accuse David of sin uh, for leaving the land of Israel temporarily either. Another sermon said, David abandoned the Lord and his people and crossed over to the enemy. Abandoned his people? I don't think so. It was the people who would abandon David and he was trying to make the best of that situation. In fact, he didn't abandon the 600 soldiers or their wives or their children. He was caring for them. And if you read 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Samuel, you try to get the overall flow of those two books, you get the distinct picture that uh, the writer of these books is painting that God was developing from the remnant of Israel a new Israel, a growing army that was coming over, defecting uh, to David. And uh, the sad fact of the matter is that David found greater kindness and generosity among pagans than he did with the compromised church. And this is a strange phenomena that some of you have experienced as well. I've had businessmen tell me they'd rather work for a pagan than for a Christian because they've been ripped off by so many Christians, and Christians expect them to do their work for free. And uh, I think some of you have experienced exactly that thing. Part of the reason is because it's compromised Christians you're working with, antinomian Christians who don't understand how God's law applies in life. Another sermon said that this leaving the land was, quote, direct disobedience to the ancient commands of the Almighty. Well, he never quotes those commands. I've looked for them. I don't see them anywhere. They don't exist. You know, where are those commands? And to me, this illustrates that evangelicals can be so quick to judge something to be sin and shake their finger at you without ever pointing to chapter and verse and demonstrating that this really is a sin. It is an insidious form of legalism masquerading as righteousness. Should David have followed Saul when Saul gave him the invitation, hey, come on in, I'm not going to hurt you anymore, come on into our army? Of course not. Saul would have killed him, and verse 4 makes that very clear. Verse 4 says, It was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. What does that imply? It implies he was seeking him once again. You know, that he, it was the only reason he didn't continue to pursue David is because David was no longer pursuable. He was outside of the land. And so leaving Israel was not sin for three reasons. First of all, he had no choice. He was being pursued. And just like Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 23, commanded his disciples to flee from one city to another to avoid persecution. I've got several verses that indicate from the Old Testament that God's people could flee in certain circumstances. Not all circumstances, but they could flee in certain ones. Second, Joseph and Mary are just one example of several that could be given that God did not mandate that Israelites stay in Israel. Third, David wasn't even leaving the territory that God had promised to to Israel. He was, in effect, staking out territory that he was later on going to possess. Ziklag used to belong to Israel. It had been taken away by the Philistines. And all of this illustrates you should not feel guilty by the expectations of a Saul or even by the expectations of modern commentaries who are trying to convince you you're in sin and they're shaking their fingers at you. If they cannot point to chapter and verse, you need to stick to the perfect law of liberty. This is what Galatians 5 
It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. There's always going to be Pharisees out there who are going to tell you, you can't smoke, can't drink, you can't dance, you can't uh, you know, do this and the other thing. You can't eat chocolate, you know. Anything that they, that they disapprove of. And, and what's happening there? They are defining the sin, not the Scripture defining that sin. And once you add to the perfect law of liberty or you take away from the perfect law of liberty, you lose liberty. So that's our second lesson. The third myth says that by going to Gath, David showed that he lacked faith. They say that he should have trusted God to protect him in Israel. I'm just going to give you one quote from this broken thinking. Uh, One person wrote, and actually this is a pretty decent uh, book uh, that I have. In many ways I like uh, this guy, but he said it was very dishonoring to God. Had he not sworn to make David king, to cast forth his enemies as out of a sling, and to give him a sure house? Had not these promises been confirmed by Samuel, Jonathan, Abigail, and Saul himself? Had not the golden oil designated him as God's anointed? How impossible it was that God should lie or forget his covenant. It would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one jot or tittle of the divine promises to become invalid. Surely then, it was unworthy of David to say, in effect, I'm beginning to fear that God has undertaken more than he can carry through. I've waited till I am tired. Now it is time to use my own wits and extricate myself while I can from the nets that are being drawn over my path. Well, let's uh, read verses 1 through 4, and let's just see if this criticism really holds up. Verse 1. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul, and the rest of the verses indicate, if I don't do something. He's not saying, I don't trust God. He's saying, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to perish. And this highlights David's true faith versus a faulty view of faith that is rampant in America. It's a passive view of faith that Rodney uh, mentioned earlier. It affects people's thinkings on need for a job, on birth control, on getting out of debt, on politics, on so many different areas of life. Now, of course, they're not totally consistent. They'll be passive over in these areas and say, you can't do it, you just need to trust God. But they're not consistent. They don't trust God for the groceries somehow to come off of the grocery store shelves and onto their kitchen shelves. They don't trust God to put a spoon and feed them with their food or to cook the food. for. I mean, it's a ridiculous idea. And yet they should if they're going to be consistent in their view of faith. This passive view of faith is the utter antithesis of Hebrews chapter 11. It's counterfeit. It's an antinomian faith. In fact, it's the same view of faith that Satan presented to the Lord Jesus Christ when he tempted him in the wilderness. Remember, um, Satan in effect was saying, hey Jesus, God's word cannot fail in any jot or tittle to use the expression in that other quote that I gave. It it, it has to be fulfilled. And let me give you one of God's promises that has to be fulfilled. Psalm 91. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So why don't you take him at his word? Why don't you put your trust in God to the test by just jumping off the temple here and watch the angels bury you up? Wouldn't that be glorifying to God? And Jesus, in effect, says, no. That would not be glorifying to God. 
Because the rest of psalm, that psalm says that I must be responsible in my actions. That's exactly uh, what was going on in, in that psalm. And so that's what David is doing while trusting God. And it would have taken trust to go into Philistia. Man, that's a scary thing, going into the enemy's territory. So while trusting God, he's making the best plans that he can think of to take care of his family and all of the other families he's responsible for. That's genuine faith. And so verse 1 continues. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, David's widow. So he had numerous women and children to watch for. When he was all by himself, he could scramble over mountains and up cliffs and, you know, through gullies and stuff. He could evade Saul a whole lot easier. But when he's got these thousands of people with him, he'd have to come up with a different plan. Faith does not test God needlessly by jumping in danger's way. If there's no command being violated, faith causes us to seek the most prudent and wise plan and trust God to bless it. Okay, that's what David was doing. And what I learned from this is you cannot divorce trust from personal responsibility. It would be as stupid as a farmer who hasn't plowed his fields, hasn't planted any grain, hasn't watered the fields, to sit back and say, okay, I'm just going to wait for God to bring a harvest. Okay, that is not faith. That is presumption. And yet how many people will say, well, I'm trusting God for my finances when they are violating God's laws concerning finances, not taking care of their finances. I like the statement by Oliver Cromwell when the soldiers were outnumbered and outgunned. He told them, trust God and keep your powder dry. Okay, the Reformed doctrine says the duty is ours, the outcome is God's. Okay, you've got to hold those two together. Human responsibility and trust must come together. And it's an insult to God to say you're trusting Him when you're not doing the things God's commanded you to do. That's not trust, that's disobedience. So we cannot have an antinomian faith. Myth number four says that David was in sin by setting up his own civil government in verses 5 through 7. Let's read those verses. Then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? I mean, it would have been a, a burden for them to have that many people added uh, to their city. So Achish is probably quite open to that now that David has proved himself, quote unquote, to be a faithful servant, right? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. Now David had enough men to fill a small town. And if every one of those men had a wife and children, as the text seems to indicate, you've got a minimum, if they've just been newly, fairly newly married, they've got a minimum of 3,000 people. That's plenty enough to fill a small town. But there's a whole lot more that start coming. First uh, Chronicles 12 says almost immediately there were numerous people began defecting to David. Gives a long list of captains, quote, 
the least of whom was over a hundred, and the greatest of whom was over a thousand. So that's several thousand more people that are looking to David to be their leader. Now, if, he, if they've made him to be the mayor of Ziklag, automatically he is a king, right? He's automatically, in the ancient world there, a king. And when you read this chapter together with First Chronicles 12, it paints the picture that a new Israel is emerging with an ever-expanding army. Verse 22 of that chapter First uh, Chronicles 12 says, For at that time they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. So David's not abandoning his calling. He's entering fully into his calling. Now what's an application we can make from this? It is that you are responsible for your calling before God and you cannot let other people dictate that calling. You cannot allow other people to say, Oh, you're not following your calling. You're devi- you are the one who is responsible. Okay, the fifth myth is the constant assertion that David was in sin by violating God's just war principles in his massacre of the Amalekites. Let's read the verses and then, and then discuss them. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gizrites, and the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeralmelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. Now, modern evangelicals find this to be absolutely abhorrent. And it explains why almost nobody uh, preaches on these verses, or if they do, they're excoriating David. They're saying, this is just terrible. Here's my response. First of all, I would say, yes, he is indeed violating the just war principles that God has laid out in his word if he had not been fighting the Amalekites. This is not ordinary warfare. In the ordinary warfare against a country like Moab or Egypt or some other country like that, he could not engage in wholesale destruction like he did here. But I've given five passages in your outlines where God specifically commanded the annihilation of every man, woman, and child from those tribes that were within the borders of Israel. Their cup of iniquity, he says, had become so full that they were judged in God's court and God was merely using Israel as his executioner. No human court could ever do this. No human civil magistrate on his own could ever authorize such a destruction. They were just God's executioner. And uh, it was by special revelation. Standing law did not allow for that. But this was a special form of warfare known as harem warfare, if you like the Hebrew, harem. You can get a little bit of guttural spittle coming out there. Harem warfare. And it took inspired divine revelation to engage in it. It does not continue to apply for today. Let me repeat that. It does not continue to apply for today. In fact, it didn't even apply for most of Israel's history. Once the conquest had taken place, they were never again allowed to engage in that kind of warfare. But Exodus 17 commanded Israel to utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Deuteronomy 25 commanded exactly the same thing. And when you read 1 Samuel 15, you see that Saul was commanded not to allow any survivors from the Amalekites that he was fighting against. Saul was rejected from the throne precisely because he allowed survivors. 
That was the reason why he was rejected from the throne. What David is doing is not cooked up in his own brain. As a magistrate of Israel, he was fulfilling the law, of um, not the law, but the special mandate of God back then, like Saul failed to do. So he was acting as a good king of Israel should. Now, <laughs> what possible application can be made from a principle like this that no nation is allowed to engage in today? Well, there are four applications. Uh, the first application is that this was a type, this was a picture of hell. And we all deserve uh, hell, uh, this utter destruction. Hell is infinitely worse than any destruction that's being even mentioned in this chapter here. Hell is what we all deserve, and if we cannot believe that God hates sin enough to destroy these people whose cup of iniquity was so full, we're going to have a hard time believing that God hates sin enough to create a hell. Second, it shows the incredible nature of God's mercy and His grace and His love toward Israel and David and anyone else who got saved. Okay, we all deserve the same judgment. We all deserve to go to hell. Joshua made that very clear. Uh, in the book of Joshua, he says, hey, God did not save you because you were any better. No, this was God's sovereign mercy that was displayed uh, toward them. And God sent his son to endure hell in our place. In other words, God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus as our substitute. He endured harem so that we would not have to endure harem. And for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, or in David's day, renounce their gods, renounce their tribe, become Israelites, put their faith in the coming Messiah, we have His grace, His mercy. We have fellowship with Him. And just to show you that the grace and forgiveness is not for New Testament times alone, I want to mention some of the people who abandoned their gods, put their faith in Christ, and served with David. Did you know that David's bodyguards throughout his life were Philistines, the Pelophites, and the Cherethites, incredible warriors. They embraced God, were loyal to God all through the time of David, all through the time of Solomon, and very, very faithfully served. They were former Philistines who put their trust in God. Or you can think of Uriah the Hittite, you know? He was a guy, he was a guy who faithfully served the Lord. And these just illustrate that anyone can escape the harem of God's judgment if they will put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Even in the original conquest, this was true. Remember the tribe of Gibeon? They trusted in God, did it in a rather devious way, you know, sneaky way, but God later praises them for their faith. And again, it shows that... Um, uh, even those under harem can escape by faith in Jesus. And so this passage points us to the gospel. A third application is that we should never soft-pedal anything in God's Word in order to make it politically correct. There's enormous pressure that America is putting upon the church to ditch the politically incorrect messages of the Scripture. We are being put under enormous pressure to not believe certain things in Scripture. Let me tell you something, though. Saul was rejected because he rejected the harem message of God. He soft-pedaled the harem message. That's how seriously God takes it when we are ashamed of His Word. Here's what Jesus says in Mark 3, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so ironically, it is David who is honoring and following the words of Christ, not modern commentators who criticize him, who are more interested in the opinions of man than they are in the opinions of God. One last application of point five. It is legitimate to secede. And to say otherwise and to make any national union uh, perpetual or eternal is to idolatrize that union and to make that nation divine. Only God is eternal. And for Abraham Lincoln to declare that the union was eternal was to idolatrize the central government. It is legitimate to set up an alternative government like David did. No, actually, for that matter, like America did. We seceded from our union with Britain, didn't we, when we established this nation. But it's centralist presuppositions that make people critical of David setting up an alternative government. Now, the last myth was the idea that David sinned when he deceived Achish into thinking that he was attacking Israelites. Now, he didn't actually say that he was attacking Israelites. He just implied it when he said, okay, I went against this region over here, and I went against this region over here. But let's read the last three verses. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor one alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, Therefore, he will be my servant forever. Now, keep in mind that the Canaanites, including the Philistines, were condemned uh, by God to Haram. So when the city of Ai, just as one example, was being attacked by Joshua in Joshua chapter 8, did he owe that city full disclosure? Well, obviously not. He was at warfare with them. What he did was to deceive them into thinking that they're afraid and they're fleeing away from the city so that the whole city comes tearing after them and they've got some other people come in, burn the city down. Now, God commanded that strategy. See, without deception, you're going to have a very tough time in the military. <laughs> you're going to have a hard time engaging in any kind of warfare. Okay? But secondly, he wasn't actually even lying. Every place that David attacked was an area that God had given Israel as a possession, but the enemies were there. They had possessed some of that and taken it back. And God blessed the faithfulness of David by giving him victory after victory against all odds. Certainly, he had to wait to attack some of the Philistines, but he didn't owe them full disclosure. And so what I want to do, I want to end by encouraging you to live your lives, Coram Deo, before the face of God. If you're constantly trying to please man, it's just not going to work. When you're obeying God's word, you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be misrepresented. You're going to be persecuted for doing that. And that's okay. Your goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, not to glorify man and enjoy their favor. Now, none of us likes to be hated. None of us likes to be persecuted, obviously, but if you can cast off the bitterness and the anger and the frustration and all the other negative emotions that David did with his songs, then, and you faithfully serve God where you serve, you will find God helping you just as he helped David. He will help you against all odds, and in his perfect timing, he will bring you out of tribulation and into victory. 
Now, I'm going to close with the passage that Rodney was preaching on. It's uh, Kathy, one of Kathy's favorite, but I just think it's a perfect way to end this. It's Psalm 37, 1 through 9. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You have called us to live by faith and not by sight. And there are times where walking by faith seems so insane, and yet we believe You, Father. We believe Your Word, and it is our desire uh, to uh, do the things that You have called us to do faithfully, not be driven by the expectations of man and, and not be tossed to and fro by the persecutions that we may receive, but to faithfully and lovingly live out Your Word. And I pray that You would help this, Your people, to do so in this coming week. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.